Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 42. The famine that Joseph predicted has now reached into the land of Canaan and has begun to affect the family of Jacob. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now, let's just pause and notice that the text seems to imply that Jacob has come to suspect the involvement of his sons in the supposed death of Joseph. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, His firm decision and noncommittal words exactly reflect the state of his knowledge about Joseph's fate, not a fact, had come to light. About the brother's guilt, little doubt remained. Under a father's eye, their actual crimes might be covered up, but not their character, closed quote. It is a very hard thing to suspect the worst about your children. And Jacob wisely does not wish to entrust Benjamin to their care. Verse 5 goes on to say, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Here we see Joseph's boyhood dreams coming true. But think of all the things he didn't see between then and now. He didn't see the well he was thrown into, or the 20 pieces of silver he was sold for, or the injustices he would suffer in Potiphar's house, or the years he would spend in prison. He only saw the end. And of course, this is why you cannot govern your life by dreams and visions. Whatever you think about dreams and visions, and it is only recently that evangelicals have been inclined to dismiss them categorically. Martin Luther claimed his life was saved by a vision given to his wife, Katie. But whatever you think about them, let us agree that they are nowhere near reliable as a source of guidance or understanding. There are huge information gaps in dreams. And there's, of course, the very subjective matter of their interpretation. Suppose you did have a dream. How do you know what it means? And to what extent does your own vanity and ambition influence how you interpret it? On the other hand, the Word of God is outside of us. It's from God, and it does not change and is not subject to our whims, fancies, and conceits. And therefore, it 
rather than our dreams and visions, must serve as the authoritative standard for life and godliness. As Joseph said, interpretations belong to God. He knows what they mean. But where he is silent, we had best be silent too. Verse 7 says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And of course, that makes perfect sense. Joseph now appears as an Egyptian. He speaks a different language. He is wearing different clothes. He has a different name. And of course, it has been 20 years and he is no longer a teenage boy. He is a man in the prime of his power and authority. Verse 9 says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now, here they're trying to make the argument that if they were spies, there's no way they would all have come together. No family would risk losing all of its sons on some sort of spy venture. The fact that they've come as a group likely reflects the fact that they intend to carry back as much grain as they can possibly manage. That's the argument they're making. Verse 14, But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now, at first glance, it looks as though Joseph is being vindictive, but that's not the case. Rather, he is testing them to see whether they are, in fact, changed men. The Jews have always understood this narrative as a test by Joseph, and of course, in another sense, by God, to see whether the essential character of these men has been changed and improved by 20 long years of guilt, conviction, and regret. The JPS Torah commentary, for example, says that Joseph feels he must find out conclusively whether or not his brothers regret their actions and have truly reformed themselves. He decides upon a series of tests. Closed quote. The first test, obviously, is a little time in prison. Joseph wants to see if they turn on each other. He wants to see whether they trust each other. After all, at this point, they believe that one of them will have to go back to Canaan on behalf of the entire group. Do they trust any one of them to act in the best interests of the family? Joseph lets them stew in that. And then he changes the terms of the test. Verse 18 says, On the third day, 
Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. The Hebrew expression means simply, they agreed to the terms. Verse 21 says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is our first indication in the text that these men have changed. God has been working on them. They have been stewing in their guilt for 20 years, and now they can't help but see this present distress as a form of divine retribution upon them for their former treachery. Verse 23 says, They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them, And bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Joseph is deeply affected by the evidence of their conviction and reform. Having heard that that Reuben had no part in the villainy that was done to him, he chooses Simeon, the next oldest, to serve as the hostage against their eventual return. It may be, in fact, that Simeon was the original instigator of the plot. We don't know for sure, but we know that he had a reputation for violence. Back in chapter 34, verse 25, after the incident with Dinah, the Bible says, On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon, And Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Simeon had been a violent and murderous man. And it may well have been that Joseph thought him best suited to an extended season in prison. Regardless of the reasoning, Simeon was remanded into custody. The other men were released with the promise that they would return with brother Benjamin. In addition, Joseph had planned another test. He put each man's money back in his pack. Verse 26 says, Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Joseph's test has has worked. The men are certain now that they have attracted the wrath of Almighty God. They are not having bad luck. They're experiencing divine justice. 
Verse 29 says, When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the brothers relate the main details of their journey down to Egypt. They leave out a few things, as sons are wont to do, like the fact that they spent three days in jail or that Simeon was bound before their eyes and taken into custody. They don't want to frighten their father, not to the point that he would refuse to authorize their next mission. Unless the famine breaks, they will need to go back and they will need to take Benjamin with them. So Reuben makes a bold and telling offer. He says, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now, according to chapter 46, verse 9, Reuben has four sons. So this probably means kill two of my sons if I do not bring him back to you. Reuben is trying to offer assurances to their father that this is not a trick intended to harm Benjamin. Reuben is obviously aware that their father suspects them now of murder in the case of Joseph. And so Reuben is saying here, I will not let that happen. I will not let anyone harm your son, Benjamin. I give you two of my sons as surety. Now, whether that is a good thing to do or a bad thing to do is not the point. The Bible is describing what the patriarchs did under pressure from God. It's not telling us to follow their example. What we see is that God is working in the hearts of these men. He's testing them and refining them and preparing them to serve as the nucleus of a nation. And he is saving them through a deliverer that they initially despised and rejected. That is one of the major reasons this story is in your Bible. Stephen, the church's first martyr, cited this story in the sermon he preached just before his execution. He said the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine 
throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. So Stephen sees something in this story that relates to the general pattern of redemption in the Bible that was climactically realized and fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Listen to the conclusion of his sermon. Stephen provides some further examples of the pattern. And then he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen says that God's people often reject the person God sends to save them. They did it to Joseph. They did it to Moses. And of course, they did it to Christ. God sent Joseph to save his whole family. He gave him gifts, talents, and insights, the very things his brothers resented him for. But he gave those things so as to equip Joseph for the task that would ultimately lead to the preservation of an entire people. As I said in our last episode, quoting Kidner, what Joseph was to the men of his day, this and more would Jesus be to the world. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 